So as I said this morning, we're going to try and build off of our resurgence theme of rising again into life. And as Brent shared with you, the word resurgence is the same word in Hebrew for resurrection. And for us, that means something very, very, very important in the way that we understand the life that we are called into as believers. If we are called into new life and to live again from sin and, and the effects of death and destruction, we're called again to a new life that is different. And that is the thing where very, I was going to say very many people, and that's horrible English, goodness, where a lot of people really struggle with what it means to be born again. When we're told that we are to be different than we were, but yet we're not told exactly what that means, we struggle with that. But the reality of it is, is that all through the pages of Scripture, we see what it means to be born again. But the problem with us is that when we read the pages of Scripture, we read it from our perspective instead of the perspective in which it was meant to be read. I was listening to a talk show the other day, and um, the, the host of it was talking about um, Christians being offended in the way that it seems people are being offended now more than they ever have been. And the pastor that was on as the guest that morning, he said, you know, the funny thing is, is that when Christians say they're offended, what they're actually doing is giving the devil a stronghold in their life. He said, because you're only offended if you are living according to your own perspective. And if you think about that, and we look at the life of Jesus Christ, who we are to mimic, it makes a lot of sense. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he was persecuted, he was beaten, and eventually he was killed. But never once do we hear of Jesus being offended. We see that Jesus never broke the law, he was killed because he made the wrong people angry. But yet he never got offended when his rights, as we would like to call them, uh, were invaded. He never got offended when somebody said something that was harsh or mean or accusatory. He, he, he maintained his perfect presence, his perfect purpose, and his posture in a way that shows us what new life is to look like. So building on the understanding of new life, of rising again into new life, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what it means to be a follower. Now, if you look up the word follower, you're going to find a whole bunch of definitions. And if you change dictionaries, you might find the definition worded in another way. But the way that we're going to define follower and the way that we understand follower in the way of the Christian life and being born again is defined as one in service of another. 
That's nothing new for people who are of the Christian faith, is it? We're used to talking about being a follower by being a servant to one another. We like to use the word servant, and we like to talk about Jesus as a servant, but sometimes that's a struggle for us, isn't it? We don't mind volunteering every now and then. We don't mind doing favors for people every now and then. Uh, but if we thought about being a servant to the degree by which Jesus calls us to serve others, that's sometimes a struggle, isn't it? You remember even when Jesus was hanging on the cross and those people were there mocking him and, and they were standing down there throwing rocks at him and, and just trash talking him and all that. He said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. That's a level of being about another person that I'm going to be honest with you, I'd have a hard time, I'd have a hard time dealing with in, in that moment. Now, afterwards, I'd be okay with it. You know, thinking about it beforehand, I'd, I'm, I'm okay with it. But I'd be a little, I'd, I'd struggle a little bit with it. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to talk about in regards to being a follower is we're going to talk about the idea of Christian ethics. The way in which Christians conduct themselves and they live in the society around them. So uh, if you open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read those verses. But I want you to pray with me first before we read of God's word. God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would open our ears. Open our ears to hear something that we have never heard before. Open our hearts to receive something that we were once unable to receive. God, I pray that through the reading of your word this morning, that you would continue the good work that you began in us through your son, Jesus Christ. Reveal your heart to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're taking notes... In Matthew chapter 18, we're talking about Christian ethics. And there are several different aspects of Christian ethics, and we find those in Matthew chapter 18. The first five verses deal with humility as an aspect of being a Christian and how we live as a Christian. Now, every single one of us in this room consider ourselves pretty humble, don't we? You don't ever meet anybody that walks around going, yes, I'm very arrogant. You don't see anybody that's arrogant about being arrogant, do you? So when we think of Christian ethics, there's a perspective. Again, there's always a perspective by which we have to approach it. And all of it can be framed as our response to the Messiah. What is the definition of the word Messiah? The one who comes to deliver, to save, to redeem. So everything about our Christian walk in the way that we live in the world is a response to what Jesus Christ has done in our life. So the way that you live your life is the response that you have made to Jesus Christ. Now, we're all on different places in our response. Some of us have learned a little bit more and we have responded a little bit more, allowing Jesus to do more in our lives. And some of us are kind of hard-headed. We struggle with that humility thing. And so our response to Christ is maybe a little bit stunted compared to our neighbors, maybe our spouses, 
sometimes our children even. But we think about humility. And Jesus says this is perhaps one of the most important things in the life of a Christian because if you don't have humility, you're never able to hear the Spirit when it's talking. Why? Because your head is always full of your own noise and your own music. So, in chapter 18, verse 1 through 11, let's read those verses. It says, About that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth, that unless you turn from your sins and you become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to enter into eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and your feet. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better to enter into eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. So this is one of those passages of scripture that I used to always call the extreme ones when I was in high school. When Jesus starts talking about plucking out eyeballs and chopping off limbs and things like that, I'm like, okay, he's just trying to use a little bit of example to get his point across. You know how the teacher does sometimes in class? If y'all don't do right, I'm going to pull my hair out. I tried very hard in high school to see that happen, and it never happens. So I always said this is one of those extreme passages of Scripture where, where Jesus talks in really extreme hyperboles in order to get us to understand what he's trying to, to say. But then the more and more I discovered about sin... The more and more I discovered about how sin can affect not only us, but other people around us, I began to look at these passages a little bit different. And what if Jesus is being serious when he uses these extreme sayings to help us understand what he is saying? What if we as Christians responded to God's word and we responded to God's definition of what is sin with the seriousness that we would be willing to pluck out an eyeball in order to avoid sin? It's pretty extreme, isn't it? We've gotten pretty comfortable with forgiving ourselves when it comes to sin, am I right? Oh, it's okay, we got grace. Paul talks about that. He says, you shouldn't continue living in grace or living in sin because of grace? He said, no, it should change your life. We get pretty good at forgiving other people for sin, right? Well, I can't judge because I'm a sinner too. And that's good. That's how we're supposed to do. But sometimes that's my baby. She's being fussy. <laughs> Usually she's not, but every now and then, every now and then. 
But we're supposed to be able to forgive other people when they sin because they're not perfect and we're not perfect. But sometimes we get a little too comfortable with saying, well, it's okay. We have grace. And we lose that importance of accountability. And we lose that importance of encouraging one another to walk with Christ. And in doing so, not only do we show a lack of humility on our part, but we allow and we encourage other people to walk with a lack of humility. So in responding to Jesus Christ, the disciples still haven't figured out what it means to walk in the Spirit of God. They still haven't figured out, even after walking with Jesus all this time, what it means to be a follower and a disciple. Because they ask him this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what does that tell us about the standard that the disciples were operating on, the perspective on which they were operating on? That they were thinking from their own well-being, right? Peter was probably like, well, you know, I need to learn the secret if I'm going to be the leader of all these cats because I need to be the best, right? James and John, we know them. Mom came up to Jesus and said, hey, you know, I got two sons and you got two sides Think we could work something out where one's on your right and one's on your left? So they asked Jesus this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, in his great wisdom, he pulls up a little child and he said, the one who comes to me as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you the story about my little cousin before when I would say, hey, you should go run into that door, and he'd run full speed into the door, and he did it over and over again, and he thought it was cool because I was laughing, right? You remember that? So children just respond to people that they like. They respond to people that they trust. Do you think when this little child came to Jesus, he knew that, or she knew that they were going to be the center of Jesus' theological point for the day? No. Probably didn't even really know who Jesus was. They just saw a cool dude with some cool hair and a nice flowy gown. And he said, hey, come here. Okay. Children aren't all that smart sometimes, are they? And sometimes they just respond because they're told to respond. Now, how does that make sense? Is Jesus saying only stupid people make it into the kingdom of heaven? Only people that don't pay attention to their surroundings and just trust willy-nilly are going to be in the kingdom of heaven? No, he's saying when we respond to him, that child felt that he would be safe with Jesus. That child, when he heard Jesus, or when she heard Jesus say something, didn't sit down with a pen and paper and list the pros and cons. Didn't sit down and go, okay, if I go to this dude, maybe he'll give me a piece of candy. But if I don't go to this dude, maybe mom will give me a piece of candy instead. He, they didn't do all that. They heard this guy who was teaching say, hey, come here, and they went. So that is where the first aspect of humility plays a critical part in our understanding of how we are to live as Christian believers. When Jesus calls us to come to him, we respond 
before we take the time to weigh out what it's going to cost us. Now, Jesus says in another passage of Scripture that only a wise person before building a house would sit down and count the cost. Only a wise person before buying land would sit there and, and, and see if it would make them money or not. But here Jesus is saying, the one who responds in faith and comes like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Oswald Chambers in his devotional, um, he, he says that a person who lives in the will of God is not constantly asking God, what is your will? Because subconsciously they're already living in it. He said their mind is so attuned to what Jesus is doing and their thoughts are so centered on Jesus Christ that they don't wake up every day going, God, let me be in your will because they just trust that God is going to do his thing and that's where they're supposed to be. He said, as a matter of fact, when a Christian starts begging God to show him his will... That means that they're beginning to see the world from their own perspective again. You see, when we think of humility and we think of arrogance, we see it as haughtiness. But for the Christian believer, the most dangerous kind of arrogance that we can have is one where we don't trust when God calls us. We don't trust when Jesus says, hey, I've got this taken care of. We don't trust, as we like to say, the end of the book when we know who wins. So the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost, realizes their own weaknesses. This day is going to be terrible if it's up to me on my own to make it successful. I will surely fail if it is up to me to be diligent today. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven realizes their weaknesses. A child knows that if they want something to eat, they got to go to mom or dad. If they're scared and they want to be protected, they run to mom and dad. They don't start building up fortifications and, and recruiting friends to become an army, do they? No, they run to mom and dad because they know that mom and dad will be the ones to save them. So first and foremost, we are to be humble and realize our weaknesses and that we need Jesus Christ's protection. We need Jesus Christ's protection from sin. You see, sin is something that we struggle with even after we're saved. We know that because of grace and the blood of Jesus, we are no longer seen uh, in the eyes of God as guilty because of our sin. But we can all acknowledge the fact that we all still struggle with things after our salvation. Am I right? So the first thing of humbling ourselves is understanding that it is because of that weakness that Jesus Christ has come to redeem us. It is because of that very weakness that Jesus gave us that thing called grace. So we trust in Jesus' goodness, not our own goodness, not our own ability. So we have been restored not of our own doing, but because of our faith in Jesus. Have you ever thought about humility as an act of believing? 
We don't ever see it that way, do we? We solely see it as an outward act of somebody's actions or interactions with another person, the way they carry themselves. But here Jesus is telling his friends, his disciples, that in reality it is our arrogance that keeps us from believing. It is our arrogance that keeps us from trusting. So there are three ways that we need to regard humility and we need to see humility and frame out the understanding and see it through the perspective that Jesus Christ is sharing with us. First off, we see humility of ourselves before God, that we are sinners, that we're saved by God's doing, that we are redeemed because of God's love, not because of our worthiness, that we are called to a new life in God's perspective and not our own. Beforehand, we were running the show. Now we have become followers, somebody who follows but also somebody who is in service. We are in service to another with our new life, so we become humble before God. And when we quit becoming humble before God, then we begin to try and run the show again by ourselves. Then we need to see our humility unto God. So before God realizing it is not our doings that has earned us salvation, but then what is humility unto God? When Jesus calls us to go, we respond. We don't count the cost. We don't try to reason it out to make it make sense. We know that Christ is calling us because that is where we are at and we are willing to go. But also, we live according to the rules that God makes for our lives and not the rules that we feel we are called to live by. That's something that we all struggle with, right? We can all open the Bible, find something that we struggle with a little bit, and we try to reason it away. Am I right? Is that just me? Anybody else in here? Okay. Just making sure. And then thirdly, we need to see our humility because of God. When we're responding to the Messiah because of what God has done in our life. What does it make our life become? If we have truly responded to the work of Jesus Christ, then we are going to respond by giving Jesus every single thing that we have or every single thing about us because we know that he is worth it. Because we know that he can be trusted because we know that when he speaks, he means the words that he says. And when he makes a promise, we know that he will fulfill those promises. So in the perspective of a believer, we respond by living our life as another through becoming a follower of God. We work just as Jesus Christ did, not to pursue our own interests, but to pursue and to redeem our others, the ones that God has called his children. The second passage, or second part of that passage there, he says, but, remember those words, therefore, 
And then but. But is an important, important word in scriptures. And he says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now we're not talking about a cinder block and some yellow nylon rope. He's saying a big, huge millstone like it would take a mule or a donkey to pull around in circles. He's saying, again, it's one of those extreme passages, it would be better to have that tied around your neck and thrown in the sea than be guilty of leading someone who God calls his child into sin. That's pretty stinking serious, wouldn't you say? You see, as a Christian who walks in humility and sees their life through the perspective of God instead of the perspective of themselves running the show, not only are we paying attention to the way that we respond, but we have assumed that there is a responsibility for us in the image and the message that we share with others. We've got a bad habit as believers sometimes of letting people and affirming things in people because we don't want to come across as mean or judgmental. Did you know that Jesus was able to fully grasp the truth and hold to the truth and never once did he stand as judgmental over somebody? Never once did he blast somebody out apart from the grace that he had come to give and to share. So if we are to respond in humility, then we realize that we have a responsibility to the people that God sees as his children. What would the church look like if each one of us in here saw everybody that we came into contact with as though Jesus did. How different would our churches be? How different would our world be if each person who had responded to Jesus Christ responded in humility, where our perspective was no longer the one by which we operated, but instead we operated on the perspective of God who has called his most precious creation as his children. So Jesus is telling his disciples, not only will the greatest in the kingdom of heaven be one who comes when I call because they know that I am worthy to be responded to, that I am able to be trusted, that my words are true, that my intentions are good, he said, but also uh, the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is aware of the importance of their role, is aware of their responsibility. It's very easy for us to take this book and teach it according to how we want it to go, to how we, we think it needs to be fit into the situation or the setting. But Jesus said, Greatest is the kingdom of heaven, and, and heaven are those who realize the work that I am doing 
and that it is more important to tell them the things that I have said than it is to maybe tell them the things that they want to hear, than it is to maybe try and make sure that you're still liked afterwards. But we have to do it the right way, don't we? We can't do it the wrong way, and, I, and we struggle with that. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who has responded in humility and who forgives others in the same capacity that they realize that they have been forgiven. One of my most favorite passages of Paul is the one where he talks about how he is the chief of all sinners. And in Christian lingo, we like to claim that passage for ourselves because we like to think of ourselves as somebody who has got it all figured out and we've responded to Jesus. But we struggle with truly acknowledging that we are the king of sinners or the queen of sinners or the greatest of sinners, whatever words you want to use. Because it requires a level of humility that is foreign to our sinful nature. To truly acknowledge that we are the greatest of sinners, but yet because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are seen through the eyes of the Father as blameless. That is something that is hard for us to comprehend. That is hard for us to grasp. Even though we can say, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, the evidence of our belief and our trusting in that and our responding to that is found in the way that we regard our neighbor. The way that we regard those who have confronted us, who have offended us. I love it when people say, I'm offended. I like to go, so? Especially if they're an adult. <laughs> That's not nice, I know it, but it, it's just how I do. It's just how I do. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is one who has responded through humility. Humility before God, acknowledging that they are a sinner who has been saved through God's work in the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is one who has responded in humility unto God. Acknowledging that God's ways are higher. That God's words carry more value and authority. That the things that God has said are to take precedence over a life that has become made new. And a person who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is one who has responded in humility because of what God has done in their life. They're willing to forgive because they realize exactly what had been done in their own life. They're willing to go for the sake of others because they have acknowledged what has been done in their own life. And they're willing to listen because they know that God's word is good and God's promises can be trusted. So this is my challenge for you this week. As we go out 
to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Again, there's more church talk. We like to say, we like to hear, but we really struggle to live it out because it requires us to respond in a way that is unnatural. If our perspective is not operating as a follower of Jesus Christ. So as you go out this week, realize first and foremost that you are the church. You are the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. Remember that passage of scripture, if nobody goes, how will they hear? If nobody tells them, how will they hear the message of Jesus Christ? Are you living in such a way that you are willing to humble yourself enough to speak the words of Jesus Christ to somebody who may need to hear them? Are you willing to humble yourself to respond to God in such a way that when somebody frustrates you and cuts you off or does something just horribly mean to you, that you would remember the grace that has been given to you and you would be willing to give that grace to somebody else. What is your response to the Messiah? Are we responding in humility? Are we responding as a follower? Are we responding as somebody whose life is operating through the newness of Jesus Christ with a perspective of seeing our world through the eyes of God and not the eyes of ourself? Will you join me as we pray? Father God, we thank you that you are a big God. God, that you are bigger than our ability to understand, that you are bigger than our ability to respond. God, as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we often picture that as a nice gentle, meek person who never says anything that might upset, who never steps out of line for the sake of maintaining order. But God, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at the life of Jesus Christ, everything that he did was against the order and the status quo and the, the way that sinful humanity had laid out that we are to exist and operate. God, we are grateful that you are bigger than that. God, I ask for each person in this room through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us this week what humility, as you have explained it, looks like. That we would be humble enough to respond when you call us, that we would be humble enough to acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways, that your perspective is better than our perspective, and that your understanding is clearer than our understanding. God, that we would be humble enough to go when you call us, we would be humble enough to see what is before us. God, thank you that you have made us a part of the work of Jesus Christ in our world.
May we get off the couch of our spiritual walk. Let us trust, let us obey. Let us respond to you this week as your people and let us live as followers of Jesus Christ and service to one another because of the new life that we have been given. We pray all this in the precious and holy name of your son. Amen.